0: i women of AB Poly. I'm your host Deirdre Mitchell-McLean.
1: And I'm your co-host Kathleen Smith aka Kiki Planet. So today we have
0: Dr. Cynthia Padu who's an assistant professor in the Bachelor of Physical Education Transfer at Grant McEwen University in Edmonton. She completed her PhD with a research project entitled Voices from the Streets and she's a community advocate, researcher and writer. Welcome Cynthia. Thank you. And we also have Dr. Christine Gibson. She's a family physician in Calgary with a background in justice work, medical education, and global health. And she's also a facilitator, speaker, and writer. Welcome, Christine. Thanks. The reason that I had brought you both together is because you both have a background in community. Let's bring that forward for our listeners. Cynthia, you began your education in kinesiology, Did you expect you did you expect that to take you to a dissertation on teen homelessness?
2: Uh,
0: No, no,
2: (laughs) (laughs) no. In fact, uh, my undergraduate, I worked with athletes. Um, I was as an as an athletic therapist that that was a really long time ago, but uh, it was quite a journey, uh, the journey between my undergrad and then my master's, which was still related to athletes and dance. And it took me to teaching, teaching health and health promotion, and which uh, luckily got me uh, the amazing job that I still have 20 years later at Dartmouth McEwen. And as part of that, I started trying to get my students into the community. Teaching health and health promotion, things evolve. And, you know, when I taught in the mid 90s it was all about personal health and personal responsibility for your health and you know things evolved and you start i mean i think we've always known this but i think more in health research and in in health promotion uh really starting to focus on the social determinants of health and looking at how your environment and how housing and poverty and income inequality are actually key determinants of health and and have much greater impacts on the health of a population than any amount of exercise or eating properly will, because those things those determinants actually impact your ability to do all those personal responsibility things that Hmm. we uh, tell people to do and so that brought me into the community into working with uh, into bringing my students into the community to get a better understanding of poverty in Edmonton and, and that led to my connection with my community partners in Edmonton, work with Youth Experiencing and Homelessness and, and led me to just get a better understanding of what's happening in Edmonton. And You know, initially it was a small, I just want to see how the arena redevelopment in Edmonton was going to affect uh, youth experiencing homelessness downtown. Uh, but it really led me down a path to much greater things of how government policies impact poverty and homelessness, neoliberal ideologies, settler colonialism, financialization of housing, all that kind of stuff. Those all just are this vicious circle that just continually perpetuates that cycle of, of poverty and homelessness. If we don't change things at the policy level, um, if we don't Understand how we've turned housing into a market as opposed to a right, treating house, housing as as a as part of the market economy as opposed to housing as human right. It's just going to continually perpetuate
0: the issues of of homelessness. Christine, I see you. I see you nodding a lot. So, as a as a medical doctor, I mean, you expected to be engaged with people at the community level. But how did you get into your particular interest, which seems to be stress reduction? Health and well-being. Okay, that part makes sense.
3: (laughs) I started to understand about social determinants of health pretty early on because when I worked uh, as a medical student in Toronto and then in the Northeast community in Calgary, it seemed that the postal code and the life circumstances and events had so much more to do with what I was seeing in front of me than, you know, anything else. When I was reasonably early into my career, like probably seven years in, I started a a master's in medical education. And as a part of that, I was asked to create a residency program here in global health, which has now been renamed health equity. So it's really examining what are the external factors that in terms of people not having their basic needs met will affect health. So I created that residency program in 2007 and I ran it for about six years so health equity has been the lens that I see health care for the vast majority of my career. The mental health piece became more apparent. When I trained in medicine uh, 20-some years ago, we didn't really understand the root causes of ill health and, and the pendulum would swing back and forth as to whether stress contributed or not. But there's been some really clear studies since then. So Kaiser Permanente did a large study Uh, within the last 15 years in California, examining 10,000 people in, you know, a middle-class cohort. And that resulted in something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Research Study. And what we understood at that point was that for every difficult thing that a kid goes through, so we're talking emotional, physical neglect, a parent suffering with addictions, witnessing or being part of domestic violence but also not having your needs met so having to go to school without you know eating or not you know having new, new clothes and trying to make do with what so so poverty was certainly one of those we call them aces all of this knowledge became more available to me after i finished medical school and and the pieces started fitting a lot clearer that people who go through these challenges as kids it rewires their nervous system and it sets them up for a very different life unless you can do nervous system remodeling. So that's really what I try to do with a lot of my mental health work is just saying, well, how does your body react to the stress of going through these really challenging experiences and what can we do um, to try to mitigate that in terms of what your nervous system is doing now and the manifestations for your physical and your mental health.
0: So both of these together like uh like Cynthia you're you're really coming at it from physical aspect and Christine you having that opportunity to see how the mental health really affects it all are are we doing more work now that actually teams up both of those perspectives in collaboration with each other because that's something that I mean, that seems to pop out in other, let's say, policy issues that people have is that it's, it's so, um, it's a silo. It's the silo. It's not, they're not looking at multiple variants, I suppose. So is that something that, like, are you seeing that? Are you helping to contribute to making that not happen any longer? (laughs) In public
2: health, that understanding is there, of the connection between the mental, the physical, uh, the social, the economic, I I think, uh, you know, not being a medical doctor, but I believe that's probably shifting in in medicine as well. But definitely from a public health perspective, we know that it's all intertwined and interrelated. And um, also, like I said, those determinants you know, we you talk about oh now I think like 16 in Canada, 16 different determinants of health have been identified: immigrant status, Indigenous ancestry, all these kinds of things. Uh, but they're all intertwined, as well, right? Like housing is a determinant of health, education is a determinant of health. But if you're living in poverty, it's difficult to find housing, and the type of education you might get uh, is going to be impacted. So, so even though we identify all these different determinants of health, they're they're all Molds and intertwine and come together to impact both health at a at a personal level, but uh, especially at a population level. Like if you're looking at the whole um, province of Alberta, country of Canada, those are all things that are going to to impact your health. And and Christine made a really interesting comment about looking at the postal codes. You know there was there was a report I can't remember. It's got to be ten years ago that. Uh, in Edmonton that if your postal code was within the downtown city core your life expectancy was significantly lower than those of uh, whose postal code was in uh, in and around uh, you know the donut of, of Edmonton right there's a downtown wow. city core and people that are moving out to the the periphery of the city um, and there was a significant difference in life expectancy between those living in the downtown core and those that were outside of that and you could trace income level specific
0: right? That's very specific
2: <laughs> to, to those groups. Um, or when you look at like Fraser Institute rankings of which are the best schools. Yes. Well, look at the socioeconomic status of the people right. that go to that send their kids to those schools, right? The ones that have the highest ranking have the higher socioeconomic status. The ones that have the lowest ranking tend to be people living with low, lower um, socioeconomic status. So it's, it's really not an indication of the this education is, or intelligence right. level of those children. It's really uh, an indication of the community and, and and circumstances that those kids are living in,
1: because it is in fact all intertwined. Right, every aspect of it is connected.
0: How does that? Because this is this is the where the conversation led fairly quickly. But actually, let's go back to that tweet thread that you wrote right after, right after Christmas, right before New Year's. I think it was like December twenty ninth. I remember strange things. Christine, <laughs> um but you had you had put this list together of of these inequities that were just being exposed. Massive spotlights put on on these problems because of the pandemic. What were like let's go over some of those things that you had brought up. I'm sure each one is an individual podcast
3: <laughs> <laughs> session but um, sure, yeah, I mean, I called it the isms, and it was it was resulting from some conversations I was having, even within advocacy spheres about how much interconnection um we needed to you know acknowledge and work towards, so from my perspective, I take a very systems view of things, and I don't think that we can just say this is the pandemic in isolation because. That's not what the pandemic does. The pandemic disproportionately affects, you know, women who are trying to stay in the workforce when you know a school is on or off or virtual, or whatever. It, it very much disproportionately affects um, BIPOC communities, many of whom are, have taken on roles as essential workers. And um, I was a part of the uh, response from the refugee clinic perspective for the Cargill meatpacking plant where you know, 50% of employees were infected over a very short period of time. I I think because of the places where I've been privileged to, you know, interact with the public, I I think it's more apparent to me that, you know, racism and sexism and, and, uh, you know, elitism or classism, you know, these kinds of inequities that have been problematic, you know, civil society for a long time. The cracks are opening wide up. I don't think it's a coincidence. There was a resurgence in the Black Lives Matter movement and even the far-right ideologies in the states. The the inequity actually breeds polarity because so many people are feeling like their needs aren't getting met and then they, they want to try to address that by saying, well, who else could be responsible for that? And we start to blame each other, and certainly that I think politicians and certain other kinds of, I don't want to say media, because I, I really don't think that they feed it um, unless there's, you know, a partisan um, agenda within that media. Right. But, but I think we're, we're looking for somebody to blame and we're looking for a leg up if our needs are not being met. And right now, it's just so much more obvious who is suffering disproportionately. Unfortunately, I mean, I have heard countless stories of people losing their jobs and their livelihoods and really struggling in these times. Yet there was a survey not long ago showing that Canada's billionaires and millionaires, well, like extreme amounts of wealth. They are getting wealthier in this time. So Mm -hmm. these cracks in our system are just dramatically widening right now. And that was really what the tweet thread was about was we we don't just need to address the pandemic. The pandemic and its manifestations are a symptom of much bigger problems at the system level.
2: I think the pandemic is shining a light. On the system, inequity, systemic inequities that have always existed, and, and you know, it's it's interesting when I was when I was you know working on my PhD and learning all about determinants of health and, and those kinds of things. What, what infuriated me was reading the articles, you know, it, articles that came out the 40s and the 50s talking about the social gradient of health. So this was research that was done in in England, looking at uh, different factories and the people that were in uh, the parts of the factory where they were paid less definitely had worse health outcomes than the managers and the people that were um, higher up than men who had uh, lower levels of health than the owners of the factories, right? So that gradient of health, it, it has existed throughout time. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, like even like we talk about the, the, the father of, of public health was a man named John Snow. In England, and I was when they first put his name out. I was like, uh, John Snow, the father of public health. He found that disease was happening most. Uh, like, there's this famous water pump in England that you can go and visit. That is where John Snow discovered that there was more disease in this water pump. Uh, I think it was cholera was a disease at the time. Mm. And if I got that wrong, my public health colleagues will be laughing at me right now. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, where was the higher levels of cholera in the poor communities, right? Yeah. So, like through the age of time, like we know this, this isn't anything Mm. new. And it just keeps getting perpetuated, especially in, in Western communities where we think you need to pull yourself up from the bootstraps and you are the one that is going to uh, create success in your life. It's not the community that is helping bring you up. And um, if you are poor, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your moral character. Um, And that's why we don't need to help you because there's something wrong with you. Um, And so I remember just getting frustrated every 20 years. People are saying, we need to change what we've done in the past. Like when it comes to dealing with homelessness, I'm reading papers from the 80s. We need to change what we've done in the past. What we're doing now isn't working.
1: You know, I think Christina brought up a really good point, too, about the downloading of, uh, I'm sorry, Christine, uh, about the downloading of the pandemic on to Black, Indigenous, people of color, and specifically women. We know from the December job loss data released in the United States that 140,000 jobs were lost in one month, and all of them were women. And even more horribly, the vast majority of those jobs were lost by Black, Indigenous women, mm. by women women of color who have historically been in uh, the they've been the mass of the workforce in the service industry in uh, health care in those areas where they can't just stay at home to work mm-hmm. and how the the cost of this pandemic is time and time again downloaded to women, and we all know that as women. But I think there's there's not been enough discussion about how much further back this pandemic is setting women of color every day that it goes on, and how our, our governments aren't doing anything about that. They're, they're at a point where they're not even throwing their hands up in the air and saying, what can we do? They're just ignoring it as though it isn't happening. And when you combine that with uh, daycares closing, uh, students staying home, which parent will be the one who has to stay home from work to be with the kids, it really is women on the whole carrying the burden of the pandemic. But unfortunately, it's women of colour who are carrying the heaviest load for all of us right now.
2: Some of those are the ones that are fortunate enough that right now possibly have kept their homes but there is going to there mass increases in homelessness and um, there was a story out of Ottawa of a woman who uh she was a healthcare worker who couldn't afford to pay her rent ended up going to a homeless shelter COVID outbreak started I saw that right? so the mass evictions that might be happening soon is uh and, and and a lot of them are going to be women women with children um because they yeah. cannot afford to pay their rents, um, or to
0: pay their mortgage and their house will get put on, um And it's a travesty. Do you see that as well, Christine? And, you know, when you're looking at mental health, do you see a discrepancy between, between men and women? I guess, are, are is there more or less? I, I don't want to say resiliency, um, or even, but even maybe openness to Maybe I can do something different that can help relieve my stress. Maybe I'm not dealing with this properly.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think um, the Western medical system pathologizes women's way of handling stress more. So if you look at the DSM, which is the book of psychiatric conditions, and that's a whole other episode as to whether I think that that's it? <laughs> a social- I really think it, it is. And it's it certainly by criteria, women would have more depression and anxiety symptom. If you ask me what I truly believe, I think that these are manifestations of the external world that in which women are placed where we do have more adverse experiences, you know, whether it's uh, some kind of sexual or physical violence, or more burden of family work is placed on women, like there's just so much more external stressors that affect the way our nervous system functions. And that's why we manifest all of these symptoms that somebody has decided cluster together as pathology. Um, in my mind, women might manifest um, an anxiety when their fight or flight response has kicked in and said, you know, things are dangerous, things are threatening either me or my view of the world or my family. And the pandemic is manifesting in that way for many, many people. And so we would, pathologize that as anxiety in Western medicine. Likewise, with depression is when the system gets kind of overwhelmed and just shuts down and creates more of a dissociative state. So you you, you look like you're unmotivated, you can't get off the couch, you can't do the things you want to do in the day. Um, you know, the DSM would say, oh, you're having a depression, but to, to me, you've overwhelmed your nervous system. And so In the Western paradigm of how we view mental health, men aren't necessarily as expressive and forthcoming about the symptoms that they experience and they might experience them in different ways or they might numb them and therefore have more uh, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder in those categories. But to me, again, that's pathologizing a way that people have found a solution to the problem they have. When their nervous system is out and they need a substance to numb it, that is finding a specific solution to a nervous system problem. So like I, the paradigm of Western medicine psychiatry isn't one that I necessarily ascribe to anymore and that I've done a lot more research around it. And I still do basic family practice. And what I'm recognizing is that the way that these symptoms of nervous system dysregulation are showing up in the world is also showing up in a lot of health conditions too. So I might see more, autoimmune disease in a person whose sympathetic fight or flight system is on all the time because their immune system actually stops working. So one of the reasons why people feel really, you know, ill and draggy and fatigued is because their self-healing mechanisms that the body is supposed to be doing literally just go offline when your nervous system isn't on track. So I, it's probably a longer quest, uh, answer to the, your question than you were looking for. But yes, the statistics show that women have more depression and anxiety. But I just think it's it's a lot deeper than that. And if we're looking at things from a system's point of view, and we're looking at the body as this you know, being that actually is fully able to heal itself under the right conditions, we've just got the wrong conditions. And most of those are placed on women.
1: So Christine, would you agree then that even in, uh, well, I know medicine, specifically but even in psychiatry men's emotions tend to be normalized no matter how dysfunctional those emotions might be well while women's emotions are tended to are tend to be seen more as pathology for example men and I hate the stereotype of it, but men are more inclined to perhaps compartmentalize, to uh, repress, to stuff it down. We've always treated that as normal, whereas women are more inclined to emote and discuss and uh, show emotion. And too often that's deemed a pathology. Have, have you seen that in your personal experience?
3: I hate to do this one and give you another long um, window <laughs> I, I don't see gender as a binary in that way. Um, okay. And I think that there are certain characteristics that have succeeded through Western colonial society for a long time. And those kinds of characteristics, both people who identify as male or female, um, have exhibited that have led them to... A more kind of leadership position. And so society values what you're describing, you know, stuffing it down, not emoting, you know, you certainly wouldn't cry in a meeting if you're the CEO. And so whether you're in a male body or a female body or something in between, if you show up in that way, society rewards you. So that's the way I would see it.
1: So then my question in response to that is why would we not cry as a CEO? So this is what I find myself taking a lot of time to look at is that uh, emotion in the workplace is bad. Why? Because men don't show emotion in the workplace and therefore it's never been acceptable for women. You know, why shouldn't the CEO cry in a meeting? I, I worry we're still, we're forcing everyone to, to work within a paradigm that most of us had no part in establishing or setting up or defining. So for me, it's it's also about the question, well, why wouldn't the CEO cry in a meeting? Why have we decided showing that emotion is a bad thing? Do you know what I mean?
2: Well, and one of the things I wanted to add is, is you know, we talk about Western medicine and Western uh, colonial society, um, and one of the reasons why maybe it's not acceptable to cry uh, is the same reason that it's uh, social safety nets are seen as, a negative because that is you asking for help that is you reaching out to your community saying this is too much and I need my community around me which in North American society is seen as a deficit you know, that's a great I, insight I, because I I like I, I hate saying western because I'm I've Italian background and let me tell you community uh, the village raises <laughs> your child right and so mm-hmm. it's not all western I don't think it's not all western although there's Lots of colonial stuff going on in that in my heritage too. But, um, but you know, it's that attitude that calling something a handout, giving someone money is a handout as opposed to seeing it as an investment. And it drives me crazy because we do not criticize people for taking money, investing it in the stock market or investing it in housing so that they can make more money. But when we take money and invest it in human beings so that human beings are healthier and then don't need to go to a hospital or don't need or, or just are able to live their life. we see that as spending, not as an investment in human beings. And so so to me they're all interconnected. It's we are in this individualistic. it's all about me society and I succeed uh, when I do things for myself. If I'm seen as someone who has to cry at a meeting, there's something wrong with me because, I can't do it on my own. That's my view of, of that and how this is all interconnected in this.
1: Yeah, it's it comes across as a glorification of stoicism. Yes. Right? Like we should be proud of not emoting and proud of not not sharing our pain and, and uh, proud, proud of, of not showing everything on our own, which is an unrealistic expectation for any human being ever.
0: Yeah. It should be. But, but yeah, it's, it's highly
1: prized. And why would we glorify yeah. that? Why would we glorify this whole, you know, human as an island sort of That's a big approach question, to Kathleen. life? I just,
2: it, it, well, I, it, because we've been at least in, you know, in the society we're living in, it's, it's you create your success, Yeah. right? It, yeah. Without a realization that you actually haven't done it by yourself there's absolutely no way that anyone that is in a position of power and is successful got there on their
3: own. Well, no, that's very that's, true. Kind of brings it back to those inequities too, because in uh, North American culture, we believe in the meritocracy where, you know, if you are successful, it's because you've worked really hard to earn that, but we never speak to our unearned privilege. So for those of us who have, you know, white skin or for those of us who identify as male or those of us who are of a certain age, and different cultures kind of d- define what age um, they uh, believe should have the, the power and the the control in a society. And that changes over time. Like right now we're seeing people just saying, oh, well, these are old people in long-term care. Why don't we just let them go? Right. Mm-hmm. And another, right. They would yeah. hear those old people for their wisdom and their experience. So, you know, the characteristics that we Allow to be successful in a meritocracy are very much unearned privilege. And we never really yeah. stop to examine our own un- unearned privilege and, and what we benefit from it and what society would look like if there really was true uh, equity. You know, like if, if people who were starting with lesser amounts of privilege were helped out more so that people had, you know, their starting line was the same. You know, there's, there's many, many people who come from these incredibly wealthy families. And, you know, even a lot of, you know, the, the culture that we claim to be this like democratic, everyone has opportunity culture was, you know, predicated on slavery. And and that was not just Black people, although that was certainly the, the brunt of the bodies of culture who faced it, but, but even white people were brought over and very much not given the the basic necessities for human life and and so when a body there's this ancestral lineage that kind of learns that the world isn't safe and you know we have to do everything we can to to succeed in in a world with all of these individualistic aspirational kind of tendencies it really throws off what's meaningful. I mean, we've we've spoken before about like that community and the village. Well, we lose that sense of connection when it's really all about us. When we when we tell people that they matter more if they earn a productive living in a certain way that's ascribed to by society and makes dollars, then we value those people in a different way well, it kind of takes away the meaning from a person who's driven to be, you know, artistic, or something that is also contributing greatly to society, but not valued in the same way. So Mm. for the things that actually make humans, you know, happy, and, you know, have less existential angst, that's meaning and connection, our society has swung so far away from what drives those really core values. And I think, like, when you ask about you know why certain people might have disproportionately high rates of uh, mental health problems it, it's because they're the ones who are facing the brunt of that more, or they they can't succeed in a culture that's kind of programming mm-hmm. them to be a certain way, but they you know they're, their innate being is saying no it's not that's not what it's about
2: and I think too we we download that meritocracy to those individuals, whether they be be BIPOC or people with uh, having mental illness and those kinds of things. Because when you hear those that have succeeded, quote unquote, um, and you ask them to tell their story, we always want to hear of the, I worked really hard and I was able to get myself out of poverty. And we don't want to hear the well, you know what? There was my neighbor who was able to help me when I couldn't pay my rent, and there was this other person. And, yeah. and we don't—we don't want to hear the story of the mm-hmm. people that surrounded those people that were able to, whether it is get out of homelessness or, or, or you know, get out of the cycle of poverty. Um, it's always about the individual working hard. And 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 again, it, that's not how anyone is able to succeed. We all need people around us to. And we need a society that cares for us because, because the other thing is, oh, well, yeah. Okay. Your neighbor cared for you you knew them personally. Well, it's, I should care about anyone in my, my neighbor society, anyway. whether I know them or not, <laughs> yeah. because that just makes society a better place.
1: Yeah. We tend to mythologize, uh, mythologize meritocracy too. I'm oh, yeah. consistently amazed at how, uh, if it's a, a woman, specifically a woman of color or uh, any person of color who is, I'd say a great example, is given a spot in cabinet. We see the immediate howling, how are they qualified for that? And yet, white men time and time and time, again, historically have arisen to positions of great power on the backs of absolutely nothing. No education, no job history in specific circumstances, not even a family history or a real life lived history. And yet they can arise to these positions of great power. No one questions their qualifications. No one asks what they've achieved, what they've learned, what they've accomplished that puts them in that position. But the moment a woman of color is in that position, and quite often the moment any person of color is in that position, all we hear about is the meritocracy all we hear about is what qualifications why do they deserve it and these aren't questions we ask of the faction that has decided how our society and culture are going to be managed and who's going to be in charge
2: which is why they don't those individuals that are in uh, positions of power um, many of them in this province uh, mm-hmm. don't believe in assisting like they They think that you need to cut H. They think that we don't need to um, support people that are living in poverty as much as we do, that we don't need to provide housing, um, that, you know, and and we're going to reward the other guys in positions of power in the big corporations because they've worked hard. They deserve um, Mm -hmm. assistance from our profs.
0: And it's, we see so much of it in the language, which is what, that's what originally attracted me to politics actually was was the narratives was the language that they were using and I should have spent more time in psych classes I took philosophy instead because I liked arguing more but the under but the understanding and luckily I still kept all of my books so I I go back to my psych books actually more often (laughs) because that's what will help me kind of understand some of this and you know the first thing that I had seen was was the the advertising things that were behind or sorry the psychology behind advertising the foot in the door the like all of these things that that we use for sales but they're they're equally effective in politics and it's actually very interesting to see this and and I do I dissect the language and as we were just talking there well who's important job creators we're not talking about employees. We're talking about the job creators. They're the ones that are important. As long as they're successful, well, they'll help employees, right? Well, then they'll just give everybody jobs. And that's not how it works either. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's that's go back the... to the whole meritocracy I was conversation. Say, well, yeah. for but... the, the
2: triple down economics myth yeah. that yeah. has been perpetuated since the 80s, right? Like Reagan, who everyone thinks was, the, well, was the master of that and now, 50 years later, we know that it was useless. Like it does not work. Yeah. Um, only the, rich. we're seeing it right now. Like you said, because of the pandemic, the rich are getting richer and the poor are yeah. getting poor. And that inequity, it's really interesting because you can look at other research that looks looks at income inequality and the further gap you have between the rich and the poor, you actually have higher levels of, or, or sorry, lower levels of health, not just in the poor, but actually in the entire society, you know, like increased people have more stress, more fear, right? If you're looking in a in, living in an inequitable society, there is more fear because the rich are going to fear, the poor are going to steal from them or, or whatever it is mm-hmm. right and so because so, a lot of people think when they hear poverty and health they think it's only the poor that are impacted but it's actually the entire society that's impacted when you have large amounts of inequity between between the rich and the poor
0: mm-hmm. well and so this was you know the the theme is always kind of up for maybe it'll make it in maybe it won't but we keep circling back to this so you know, uh, income, income, and and financial security is huge, but there are all of these issues with achieving that for for many individuals. Be it education, be it health, um, there's there there's so many reasons why some people don't. I always looked at it as it's a pyramid. There's only room for a few people at the top because if everyone was at the top, if it was this way it wouldn't work. That's why there's only one CEO. That's why you've got a few more managers and you've got a few more middle managers, but the majority of people are working at the bottom and and supporting everything else. When we talk about and you know like there's been Uh, The first the first pilot in Canada was in the 70s in Manitoba, where they did their um, universal basic income, Uh, big health uh, impact, right. And the last one was in Ontario, they wanted it to go for two years, it only went for one, but they still got something out of it. And one of the big ones, again, was health, we know that a little bit more income security helps everyone. We know that that reduces the stress on the healthcare system. We know it reduces stress on mental health and on the family and therefore on children and everybody else in the family. So, I mean, it was, it was kind of, it has been one of these, um, I don't want to say pie in the sky, but sort of until CERB. CERB came along and all of a sudden people said, look, how many people didn't become homeless because of CERB? how many people were still able to put food on the table because of CERB? all of a sudden there's more people to look at and say how did this affect their lives and you know one of the one of the things that i looked at at the time and we didn't save administrative costs but over 10,000 people who had been receiving income support from the province of Alberta were told to apply for CERB. They did apply for CERB. That cleared the ledger. So obviously, there are certain things that, um, is that still an expense? Yes, it is. Obviously, the federal government does it or the provincial, we're still paying for it. But that took something off of their books. Administratively, Obviously, that could save a lot because it doesn't exist as a program that needs to be done separately. We actually have a massive research project that just went on, whether they wanted it or not. (laughs) (laughs) We've got it. And we're going to be looking at what those, you know, how some of those determinants of health actually were affected. Because, yes, there was a pandemic that was also affecting people's mental health and their stress levels and their physical health, obviously, and, and fear and everything else. But that wasn't
1: one, that wasn't something that people had to worry about. Yeah. I think it's also going to be interesting to see uh, what CERB did in terms, not only in terms of homelessness, homelessness, but in terms of reducing policing, reducing bylaw enforcement, Mm. uh, things that, We generally don't think about when we think about uh, homelessness and poverty, especially in our inner city. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what effect that had on uh, the cities as a whole. You know, it's an
2: interesting thing, though, because if you look at just serve, I mean, that you had to have had a job to get serve. And so a lot of the people that are living in poverty right now um, would not have been eligible. Right. But within um, the
0: last it was last year or this year.
2: Right. Right. So like as long saying, as you, yeah, as long as a you lot did of people have living one. in poverty or a lot of people that are, that are chronically homeless, chronically not and unemployed. It, right. Too. Okay. But so, so it's an interest, I think serve is a, an interesting experiment and, and the point you made, and, and again, I'm not a health economist. So like this, like the economics part of it is not my expertise, but the, how this can help impact health and public health is, is, is sort of my jam, if you look at when they propose universal basic incomes, uh, it it is, it's taking, take all the income supports that you are using now and roll them into a, to a universal basic income. But the universal is the important thing that kind of can rub people the wrong way because when it's universal, everyone gets it, even Mm -hmm. the CEO. And so a lot of people are like, well, that's wrong. We need to have a system so that we know who gets it and who doesn't get it. But when you introduce that kind of system, it actually increases barriers to the people that actually need it because in order to uh, be eligible, you have to do the paperwork and you have to do this and you have to do that. Whereas if it is actually universal and you literally just get a payment or a check or whatever, it is a no barrier system. So sure, it's annoying that people on the higher socioeconomic status might get it. But what you're doing is you're ensuring that people that actually need it are getting it without a barrier because look at what's happening with CERB how many people now are like oh well the government said just apply and now people have to spend have to pay back $30,000 or and there are people in inner city Edmonton living in poverty that for whatever reason um, actually got more CERB payment than they didn't and now they have to pay it back and they are in deep trouble. Um, because of that. And so that's why the universal part of it is so important, um, Mm -hmm. is because it has to be no barrier, and no stigma, right? Because it's not welfare. It's not this, it's not age. It's just everyone gets it, which for me, that's that we're taking care of our society, we're investing in our society by doing
3: this.
1: I would be far happier to give billionaires 2k a month, no questions asked than to give them millions and billions of dollars every year in corporate tax breaks.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Stop giving them the tax breaks, give them two grand a month, yeah. call it even.
2: That's exactly, right? Like, when it people makes are more like, how are you going to fund it? Yeah, there's a lot of money
1: out there. Yeah, we're going to stop giving the people who have profited off the pandemic tax breaks to profit more. That's how we're going to afford it. This isn't rocket science. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, and it's because I, you know, I wanted to get this. I wanted to make sure I got this in here because, again, you know, it started with a conversation for me and and Deirdre about financialization of housing. Um, One of the reasons that we're in an affordable housing crisis right now is because uh, multinational residential real estate uh, investors and asset management firms and real estate investment trusts have come in and they've bought up a bunch of residential properties. Many of them that were properties that people couldn't afford to pay their rent, and so now they're out of it, and they Mm -hmm. buy all these properties up, and then they crank up the rents, and so they're making millions of dollars on the backs of people that weren't able to afford either the mortgage or their rent. And so, again, it's it's such a huge problem because we have turned housing into a market-based system. Um, and so, you know, we, we need to have universal basic income and we also have to make sure we treat housing as a human right in order to get out of this, right?
1: Former Vancouver right here. so you're <laughs> preaching to the choir. Yeah,
2: but seeing the so, worst of it. But and it's just it's that perpetual is, is we're happy for these real estate investment agencies or, or firms to to make money. Well not we me, but <laughs> as a society, right? As the trickle down economics they're going to make the money and it'll trickle down and that is the opposite of what is happening right now it's creating a housing
0: crisis and so Christine I want to make sure that you get something in because I know you're probably watching the clock here
3: um yeah I mean I it's interesting it's so interesting listening to Cynthia because she's clearly thought about this uh even more than I have I, I I'm a huge proponent of universal basic income and taking the stigma out of it and taking the complexity out of it I I have at least two panicked patients to talk to soon about, you know, their their disability checks, not stretching far enough, and really, you know, worried at a time that they don't have the mental and physical energy to put t- towards that worry. So if we were able to allow people that peace of mind that their basic needs would get met, I think that would be it would say a lot about who we are as humanity, the fact that we we haven't done that yet. I I think is really a huge detriment to the direction that society has gone because it's it's also allowed us to not just take advantage of other humans um, and then see other humans in other countries as having less needs. than So we let these sweatshops take place that give us our you know abundance of sneakers and and then we let little kids in Africa mine with their tiny little fingers for the components of our cell phone of which I just bought one this weekend like yeah. like we're, we're stuck in these societies where we've allowed these like gross inequities to perpetuate for so long that we think of this as normal but it's, it's actually I think it's where this collective trauma comes from is like who we've become as people who, who, who allow indigenous communities to not have water. So we're trying to tell them to manage a pandemic and they actually can't wash their hands. I mean, it's like, we, we really haven't allowed um, people to experience the, the calmness of what it's like to have your very, very basic needs met. Um, one in seven children in Canada were food insecure pre pandemic. I don't even want to dream of what those numbers look like now. Um but, but the fact that we've allowed that as a society, and we think of that as normal mm, bang, bang.